There we go. And we're off. Good, we got it. Perfect. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the third Thursday of the month, which means it's time for your lifestyle docs, Dr. Munish Chala. And usually we have Dr. Bandana Chala, but today we're just having half of the lifestyle docs because this is his particular area of passion and expertise, because we're going to be talking about behavior change and a comprehensive approach to positive behavior change. You know, we, I was talking to Dr. Chala before we logged on saying, you know, knowing and doing are two different things because a lot of people really know what to do, but mm -hmm. doing it is a whole nother story. So hopefully he's going to tell us the secret to making positive behavior change. Thanks so much, Dr. Chal. I can't wait to talk to you. But first, tell everybody where you've been, because what an exciting country to visit, especially to, to eat vegan. Tell us about what Iceland was like. Yeah, so we went to Iceland because my older son graduated from college. And this is what we do. We don't throw graduation parties. We take them out wherever they want to go. So wow. my older son wanted to go to Iceland. And that's what we did. So it was the four of us, two boys and the two of us. And we had no trouble finding vegan food. Some of it was not as healthy as I would have liked, but you know there was no trouble finding vegan food. Finding healthy vegan food, especially if you get out of Reykjavik, is a challenge. But within Reykjavik, you know you had lots of options, always some healthy dishes. So we really enjoyed it, and the weather was perfect. It was 50s and 60s. We got out of the Houston heat, so it was fabulous. Thank you for asking. Yeah, well, that's so interesting that your you could have, your son could have gone anywhere in the world, but he chose Iceland. How come? What was his interest in Iceland? He won't necessarily tell us, but before that, you know, he graduated from high school, and we took him to Italy. And so I don't know. He's never really told us why Iceland. I think one of his friends went there, and they really enjoyed it and showed him pictures that he thought it was neat to see the volcanoes, you know, the tectonic plates, and glaciers and that sort of thing and you know glaciers with this all this climate change business you know they are receding so it may not be too much longer that we can see them so we actually went on a glacier we did some glacier hikes dr b and i actually even did some ice climbing which we have never done in our life and didn't think we would do but our kids kind of pushed us into it and we enjoyed it I, can I be adopted by you? Because I never got the option of, of picking somewhere in the world to go. And I've never, I don't think I've ever, no, I've been to Canada and I've been to Japan and Mexico, but I've never seen Europe or really um, most of Asia. That's incredible. What an experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. So guys, if you know the name of the restaurant in, I can never say that name, right? say the name, Reykjavik, 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 that they, they have, I don't know how they have a poster of me on the wall, but they do because people keep sending it to me, put it in the chat so that I can ask Dr. Chala if he actually ate at that restaurant. So behavior change, it's so hard. It is, it is. And you know, there's nothing magical about it. I'm going to go ahead and start sharing my screen. Uh, but it is something I want to give people hope that, you know, it is something you can do. And, you know, this is what the community that Chef AJ has been fostering for decades now, giving us all hope that we can do this. We can escape our addiction. So that's what I'm going to focus on today, or at least, you know, my approach on how I work with my patients at the Lifestyle Docs Clinic. 
So, you know, no disclosures, no financial ties to report. And today we're going to, again, you know, we always, we're sort of one trick pony in a sense. We always talk about lifestyle medicine because it's so important. You know, we've got to get the right food, some movement, some stress management, some sleep, all the wonderful things that lifestyle medicine reminds us that there's so much research showing that all these things work. And of course, we're going to talk about a whole food plant-based diet. And then we're really going to focus on how to do it. You know, as, Do as Chef AJ was saying, there's a difference between knowing and doing. And I'm going to introduce the four C's approach or the comprehensive approach. And then we'll see how that leads to positive behavior change. And Chef AJ, please stop me at any time if there's any questions or anything's unclear or anything comes up in the chat. And I think everyone who's been, you know, watching us and, you know, there's many other folks talking about lifestyle medicine, by no means it's just us. But I just want to remind everyone of this wonderful graphic that when all of these things come together, it just, you know, everything just works. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today, but I did want to spend a little bit of time on this slide and to just to, you know, folks to let people know that this is not just what lifestyle medicine says, not just what plant-based doctors are saying. This is what the World Health Organization's saying, what the American Institute of Cancer Research says, what the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and even the American College of Cardiology. So all these eminent organizations they all agree on these five points that we need to increase fruits and vegetables. It doesn't have to be raw, but just fruits and vegetables in any form we need to increase. We need to reduce saturated fats. And where does the saturated fat in the American diet come from? The number one contributor of saturated fat is cheese. So, you know, uh, cheese and meat would be number two. So if you're trying to reduce your saturated fat, which is what all these organizations are saying, you know, leading to lower rates of obesity, of diabetes, of heart disease, you've got to lay off the cheese, especially high fat dairy. Okay, and they all agree that we need to reduce salt, oil, and sugar. And, you know, if you're uh, watching Chef AJ for a while, you know, she advocates for SO-free diet, but at least reduce them, salt, sugar, and oil. And where is this getting into our diets is the processed foods, is the junk foods, is the stuff you're getting at the vending machines or in the inside of the grocery store. Everybody agrees that we need regular physical activity and maintain a healthy body weight. If you do these four things and manage your stress well and sleep well, you know, maintaining a healthy body weight, I mean, that's going to happen by itself. It's just part of the healthy process. Okay. So again, just want to remind everybody, you know, what are we talking about? What is healthful eating? What does the evidence say? Not what Instagram or Facebook or other posts on the media say. What does the actual science, what does the medical research show? That most of our calories should come from whole plant foods, from fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains. And if you're trying to lose weight, you may even need to lay off nuts and seeds. But for, you know, for a general healthy diet, whole foods, limiting our processed foods and uh, eliminating, at least limiting, and if possible, eliminating animal foods. So then the question is, okay, 
we know what the science says, we know what we should do, but how are we actually going to do it? So this is where I wanna introduce the comprehensive approach or the four C's approach. And the four C's are clarity, commitment, compassion, and consistency. And you know, a lot of folks can do this on their own and that's fabulous, that's wonderful. We have our clinic, it's sort of divided into two clinics in a sense that my wife does internal medicine with a flair or touch of lifestyle medicine and she makes this information available. And some of our patients are able to use the information and you know, they're off and running. Whereas I would say most of them need expert help. And that's what I do. I use the tools that I have learned from all the wonderful plant-based luminaries, from the psychologists, from what research has to offer on how to achieve long-term positive change. And I've kind of you know, uh, made this pyramid really to evoke the sense that it's almost like you know climbing up the pyramid or climbing up the mountain, kind of giving you that this is one, first of all, we need to fully acknowledge that this is not easy. Making positive and intentional changes to our diet and lifestyle is one of the hardest things to do, but it is doable. And this is my approach, what I use with my patients. You know, we have to have some clarity you know, what are we wanting to change? Why is it that we want to make the change? Do we have a game plan? How are we going to make the change? So all these things I'm going to talk about in a little more detail on the next slides, but just to kind of complete the four C's, and then we need to make a commitment. Even when we make the commitment, even when we know what's right for us, we're going to fall off. We're just human. And that's where compassion comes in. And I'm gonna talk you know, in detail about that. And then after you have compassion, you stay committed, you just keep working on it. Ultimately, you'll reach consistency and you'll achieve identity change. And lo and behold, you made the changes that you wanted to. Okay, so let's dig in. Okay, so clarity. What, what is it that I wanna change? Do I want to... Uh, lose some weight? Am I trying to reverse a disease? Do I want to just increase physical activity or better manage my stress? Really being clear on what is it that I want to do and why do I want to do that and how to do it? So let's look at the why. So this is something I spend considerable time with my patients on before we start the process. It's like, you know, why do you want to lose 50 pounds, what will it do for you? Are you afraid of a medical, di medical diagnosis? Do you feel like having extra weight is in somehow you know, not the right thing for you? What is it that you're trying to do and why? What is the underlying reason? And in my experience, if people have the attitude that you know, they are part of nature, they wanna grow and evolve, they wanna do things that are consistent with their values, that this is going to be a more gentle, more, I, I won't use the word easier, but it'll be a more fun ride. If we do it, that if I don't do this, that there's something wrong with me, if we have that attitude that I'm inadequate, then you, know, you can still move, make progress, but it makes it a lot harder. And this one extra category I'll put out there, you know, fear of medical diagnosis. 
there are folks that, you know, Dr. B's worked with and, you know, they're kind of giving her lip service that they're doing lifestyle medicine. But when they get a diagnosis of diabetes or whatever else, they get really motivated. They feel like, okay, this is, you know, they know somebody else who has diabetes or heart disease or whatever. And that really gets them motivated. So this is a special group of patients and they are just so concerned about their health, which is fabulous. And that's their main why, and which is just fine. But unfortunately, this doesn't work for everyone. So I really try to get people to attach the change that they're wanting to make and attach it to their values. And then the question is, how do you start? So a lot of times, you know, people come into me, they talk to me, we have an exploratory consult, and they are wanting to review this study. They want to know what Fitbit to buy, what Apple Watch to buy, what shoes to buy, all this stuff. And they want to research and this so-and-so says this, do I need to remove oil? All these different questions. And you know, it's good to be discerning, it's good to be educated, it's good to do some research. But at some point, you need to get started. You can't just be stuck in analysis paralysis, which some of my patients frankly are. So I tell them, just treat it as an experiment. You know, we've got some goals. This is what you want to try to achieve. And if they're really having trouble getting started, I say, okay, think about all the goals that you have in front of you and think about six months from now, an year from now. What does that look like? Just imagine what you look like, what you are doing, and that really sometimes gets them motivated. So sometimes just getting them started. So if you don't have to be perfect, we need to get to the starting blocks. So that's you know how we do it. And then we say, okay, you've got to commit to the process. You can't use one approach and use Weight Watchers or something else, if you feel like you know this is what's gonna work for you, commit to the process and say, okay, I'm gonna spend a month on this, three months on this, whatever you feel like it's going to be appropriate. And you know we can work that out. So then we, we start the process. And, and whenever you start, there's gonna be lots of issues, lots of problems. And this is part of the process. I tell people to expect problems, but this is not gonna be smooth sailing. This is just not what life is about, that we need to deal with the problems, deal with the life and still be able to do what things that are more in alignment with our goals and values. And what that involves is changing our external environment and changing our internal environment. So let's work on that. So, you know, if your fridge and pantry looks like this picture on the top with sodas and other junk food and leftovers from restaurants, you're going to have a very hard time achieving your health goals. Are you willing to commit to shop differently? Are you willing to do some prepping on the weekend? You know, if you have enough money, you can get a private chef or you can get, you know, there's plenty of good meal services. But I think for most of us, we need to at least add some tools, learn how to shop well, prep food, learn some basic cooking skills. And this is just so important in the long run. And it's not something you need to become a chef, but you need to slowly, slowly develop these tools, develop these practices. And as you're walking, we're gonna be tracking, You know, what are you doing and what do we need to tweak? And that's just part of the process. But really making a commitment 
that being healthy is important to me. I want to make positive changes to my diet and lifestyle. And, you know, this is anything I say is not going to be relevant to 100%. But, you know, most folks need to take these tools seriously, that if I really want to do this, then I need to add some more tools to my toolbox. And then working on the internal environment. Before I go there, I'm just going to pause if Chef AJ or if anyone else in the chat has any questions. So far, so good? So far, so good. Thank you. And I agree with everything you say so far. You know, when you said about if you can't go SOS free, reducing it, but the thing is, when somebody is a true addict, reducing it doesn't always give them the results they want. Yes, 100% correct. So everyone's going to be in different part of their journey and reducing may not work for you and you just need to abstain. So that's, you know, we're going to be very upfront about that, you know, these things I'm going to kind of offer tools for a variety of people, but individually, like Chef AJ says that, you know, sometimes abstinence is better than, you know, just sneaking in a little thing every now and then. I completely agree. There's a saying, complete abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Thank you. Okay. So the, you know, external environment is really important. You know, if you've got cookies and donuts in your fridge and in your pantry, you know, it's not going to work. Okay. You have to clean up the external environment. But that's not the end of the story. You've also got to work on the internal environment. And this is where I want to kind of talk about some of the psychological research, which, you know, Judson Brewer and Kelly McGonigal and some of the other uh, health psychologists, they talk about and really kind of break down, you know, in general, how are we making decisions? You know, we think we are very conscious, we're very intentional, but, you know, for human beings, we're very easily distracted. And most of our decisions, you know, we see something, we see a trigger. And let's say the trigger is you see cookies in the pantry. Our behavior is to grab those cookies and the reward is it makes you feel good temporarily. Okay, the trigger is you see, you know, something in the environment which reminds you, let's say you've got your tennis shoes by the door. The trigger is the tennis shoes. Your behavior is you go out walking. And the reward is you feel better. I mean, those are the kind of triggers we want to have in the environment as much as possible. But really kind of understanding our motivations that how does these habit loops, how do they form? The main thing I want to show on this graph here, that when you have the trigger, you have the behavior, let's say you ate the cookie and you enjoyed the cookie, but all those pleasures, all those rewards are temporary. Okay, so when you eat the cookie, it's enjoyable, you know, but after you finish the cookie, it's not like the enjoyment ceases, you actually go below baseline. This is where people eat that next cookie, where they watch that next video on uh, YouTube or what is it, TikTok. TikTok is what everyone's talking about these days. And they feel, you know, something is not quite right and they keep wanting to change this dopamine. So this is what I'm gonna, this is not 100% true, but I'm gonna say your internal state 
to a large part, or certainly dopamine is a major player in, you know, how we perceive our internal state. If the dopamine is high, we feel good. If dopamine is low, we don't feel so good. So, but we just mentioned that anything you do, the reward is temporary. Okay, I really want people to kind of hang on with that. And let's say you're hungry. So the trigger is you're hungry. Behavior is we eat something. The reward is we feel satiated. Now we're very clever human beings. We figure out at some point that if you're feeling bad and you eat something processed or something with high calories, it also makes you feel good. So now we're eating not just to relieve our hunger, but we're the trigger is now we feel bad or we feel stressed or we feel lonely or sad, whatever the case may be, the internal state, we just don't feel well in some ways. And we figure out that if we eat something, at least temporarily, we're going to feel better. So this is the start of a new habit. So before we just did it, you know, when we felt bad, but now over time, we just do it automatically. And that's what a habit is. You're doing something more or less automatically, not conscientiously thinking about it. And the worst part is most of the habits that we have that we form, they are largely out of our conscious awareness. We're not even aware that this is happening. And at some point you're using food to soothe yourself. And now you've created this habit. You feel bad, you eat food, you feel better for a little while. But again, you have to keep eating because you only feel better for a little while. So then the question is, that we form these habits that we're using food as our soothing mechanism. How are we going to make any progress? How are we gonna get away from this habit? So this is something I really kind of implore. And again, this is not 100%, it doesn't work for everyone, but a lot of my patients find that, you know, when working on the internal environment, mindfulness, is very helpful. So I'm gonna kind of break down mindfulness and how I view it or how I use it with my patients. So the first thing to do with mindfulness is just pause. Okay, we get so busy doing, you know, we're running from one meeting to another, doing 20 different things, you know, multitasking, eating and doing other things. The thing to do is just pause. Okay, and then just pay attention. What is it that I'm wanting right now? What are my cravings? What, is, what are my thought patterns? What do I feel? What does my body feel like? You have to be aware of your internal state consciously. Okay, part of the subconscious mind, it knows what you're internal state is. If we're hungry, it'll tell us eat. If we're, you know, stressed or something, it'll tell us to do something. But a lot of those things are happening at a subconscious level. We want to know what is our internal state? How are we feeling conscientiously? Okay. And let's say you're feeling bad for whatever reason. This is the next part of mindfulness. We don't deny what we're feeling but we don't try to push away what we're feeling. Okay, we're curious. Hmm, 
you know, what is going on with me right now? If I'm feeling stressed for whatever reason or anxious, we say curious, huh, what is causing this? You know, and we stay non-judgmental. And if we can do all this, and this is not easy, this is a practice like anything else, we pause, we become aware of the internal state, we stay non-judgmental, we don't immediately try to run away from it. So one is denying it. Okay, I'm not feeling bad. I'm going to use willpower and I'm, I feel just fine. So just completely denying how you're feeling. The other part is immediately wanting to get rid of the unpleasant sensation. Okay, I'm going to have a cookie. I'm going to have whatever, watch another video. I don't like the way I feel. Immediately have some sort of reactive thing. Okay, so the invitation is to just to be with the unpleasant state be curious about it, be non-judgmental on how you're feeling. And if you can just do this even for a few seconds, you have the opportunity to have a more skillful choice instead of the habitual or the reactive choice. Okay, at least that's the promise. So just another sort of visual on how to practice mindfulness. You know, this is a man and his dog, you know, going out for a walk. Mindful is being present in what is going on in the present moment. And if we're thinking about our to-do list and what we need to do, what we need to take care of, all these things that we're constantly thinking about, we're not going to be paying attention to the present moment. We're not going to be paying attention to how we really feel. So this is, you know, this is a practice like anything else. But, but I do want to tell people that we do have a choice. And to practice mindfulness, the first thing we need to do is reduce distractions. Just pause frequently in our day. If our schedule is booked from you know, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., it's going to be very difficult to practice mindfulness. So reducing the busy things we do, just making a conscientious choice that you know, throughout the day, you know, these days you've got smart watches. You just set a reminder every hour. Maybe you just take two conscious breaths or you, you know, just get up and stretch whatever it's going to take for you. So you pause and let's say, you know, you are really busy and you're distracted and someone places a plate of candy, you know, in front of you. And if you're able to pause and really be mindful, and even if you can just delay, okay, you're mindful that this is not the best choice for me. So you can say, okay, I'm not going to have a candy for 30 seconds. All right. Even if you can make that decision, maybe next time you can wait a little bit longer or you can have the thought, okay, I've got candy there, but I also brought apples today. Maybe I can substitute, maybe I can use that. Just giving yourself a little pause, just an opportunity to make a skillful choice. And the other thing that can really help in making a, a skillful choice is building your resilience. So what, what do I mean by that? Building our resilience is doing all the little things. It's like sleeping. There's so much research which shows that if you didn't sleep well the night before, the next day you're going to have more cravings. You're going to have especially high calorie processed food, carb cravings the next day. 
So you say, okay, one of ways of improving how I'm going to show up in the world is make sure I get enough sleep. Maybe I'll spend some time in nature. Uh, I tend to eat more often and I'm anxious or stressed. Maybe I can learn some breathing exercises. Maybe go to a yoga class. Maybe just going out for a walk. Maybe journaling is what's going to work for you. Or every night, maybe I'll do some gratitude practice. All of these different things, you know, it's whatever you choose, they're going to add to your resilience. So this is, you know, by what I mean by resilience is being able to weather the storms that come in life. Let's say if anything happens, we're immediately stressed or anxious. It's going to be hard to do things that are really in alignment with our goals and values. But if we're a little more resilient, we get less stressed, less often, less anxious, then we're going to be able to remember what is it that I really wanted to. So really focusing on resilience. Okay, next thing I want to talk about is, and this is something I work with my patients frequently, that the food environment that we have today, and this is, you know, I've heard uh, Dr. Iflin on Chef AJ at least a couple of times, that the food environment, she's by no means the only one talking about this. Several people have mentioned this, that the processed food companies, their goal is to make profit. They're gonna make food as addicting as possible. And the food environment we live in is just hard to escape the unhealthy food that's out there. You can't even go to a gas station or an oil change place. They have a vending machine with all this junk. So this is all around us. And our friends, our neighbors, even other family members, you know, we're all communal creatures. We do and eat whatever we see subconsciously. Again, this is largely happening at the subconscious level. We just do what people around us are doing. So all these are major, major challenges that even when we know what is the right thing to do, even when we're trying to do the right thing, working on our resilience, working on our internal uh, environment, external environment, we're not going to be perfect. Okay, so this is a huge challenge for us. And another big challenge is our own physiology. And this is the SOS trap that Dr. Uh, that Chef AJ was talking about, that our physiology, our body, our brain loves sugar, oil, salt, and things that are calorie dense. So I'm going to go over uh, the pleasure trap in just a minute. But, you know, this is something I think most of you have seen that one pound of vegetables has 100 calories whereas one tablespoon of oil has 120 calories. So, you know, for the most part, we want to stay up here and really avoid the higher calorie processed foods. So just want to go over the pleasure trap. I know this is something, you know, Dr. Goldhammer, Dr. Lyle, you know, they wrote a book on it. But just to kind of review for our sake, and you know, just think about, you know, how we evolved on this planet. You know, there's not a lot of 7-Elevens, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years ago. What we have access to is whole plant foods for the most time. Every now and then you may have some meat. Every now and then you come across, you know, nuts or seeds or even honey. But most of what we're eating is whole plant foods. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to get water. 
and we're happy. You know, this is the pleasure response or the dopamine response. This is normal. We're eating food. We're getting it. We get enough food to eat. We're satiated. Every now and then we get some meat or nuts and seeds. And, you know, we really like that because that's how our physiology is built. It likes higher calorie foods because, you know, that's what's important. If someone is eating high calorie foods, they can store some extra fat. Next time there's food insecurity, there is not enough food in the environment. The people who are able to store more fat and use that as fuel, they're the ones that are going to survive. So it's, you know, nature is not stupid. It's saying, okay, high calorie foods are going to aid in our survival. But, you know, this doesn't last very long. We go back to eating fruits and vegetables. And every once in a while, there's no food. And you eat anything, even lettuce, greens, anything, you know, simple plant foods. And then we think it just tastes great. But there's neuroadaptation. If you keep eating that same food, you know, your pleasure response doesn't stay high it comes back down, right? And now we're gonna contrast that with what's happening currently. So this is, you know, 10,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago, but now we are in an environment of abundance. Calories are cheap, you know, there's Uber Eats and convenience stores and restaurants and just very easy to get calorie dense food. And let's say someone moves from this uh, to this country and then, you know, in their native country, they're used to eating whole plant foods and they're living their life. They're enjoying it. And they move here and they get exposed to burgers and shakes and French fries and desserts and donuts. And they think this is just fabulous. But just like neuroadaptation worked in the previous slide, you keep eating this stuff on a regular basis it's no longer giving you the high pleasure. It comes right back down. This is how our brain works. Now you're eating the high calorie foods, but it doesn't give you any more pleasure. And now, you know, you read a book or you come across Chef AJ or some other documentary and your waistline is getting bigger. They said, okay, I need to make a change. So, okay, I'm going to start eating whole plant foods you notice that when you first start eating whole plant foods, it doesn't taste very good because the whole system's gotten recalibrated. The brain is literally able to produce less dopamine. So when you eat the whole plant foods initially after being addicted to fast food and junk food and desserts, it doesn't taste very good. But the good news is if you stick with it, persevere, there's neuroadaptation the other way. Taste buds adapt, our brain adapts, and fairly soon, you know, may take months, we are back to eating the healthy foods our body is designed for, and we're getting the same pleasure as we were getting when we're eating this junk food. So I really want to kind of spend a little bit of time on dopamine. And this is, you know, the work of uh, Dr. Anna Lemke, and she talks about in her book, Dopamine Nation. So, you know, when most of us are eating a cookie, watching a video on YouTube, you know, using our smartphone, whatever it might be, or whatever your vice, let's say gambling, you know, we do that activity, we feel bad for a little bit, but if we just say, okay, I'm just going to feel bad for a little bit, and then it comes back to baseline, okay, we're kind of no worse off than before having done the activity, but as uh, Chef AJ was suggesting people who are really addicted, 
whether it's food, whether it's um, gambling, they are in a dopamine, dopamine deficit state, which means their baseline, they never return to baseline where they're feeling relatively okay. They are always feeling uneasy. They're always, you know, their internal state is they're just not wanting to be there. They need that next hit because they're just so miserable. So now they're doing the behavior not because of the pleasure, because pleasure they're getting is much less than before. They're just trying to escape this dopamine deficit state. And there's MRIs that are available. People, you know, eat something, they get pleasure. The more red there is, the more pleasure they're getting, the more dopamine's being produced. But once, let's say you're addicted to cocaine, when you first start using cocaine, not that I'm advocating anybody do this, but when anyone uses cocaine initially, they're going to get lots of pleasure. But if you keep using it over and over and becoming an addict, you notice you get less and less pleasure. The only reason you're doing it because you feel so bad when you're not using the cocaine. And look at this is sugar. Someone is truly addicted to sugar. They're eating sugar not to feel good, but just to avoid feeling bad. Look how similar this looks to cocaine. So this is, you know, MRI evidence, and we've talked briefly about this, is, you know, can you be addicted to food? You can be addicted to highly processed food. No one gets addicted to bananas or broccoli. But, you know, here is MRI evidence showing that it can change the neurons. It can change how much dopamine is being produced. So this is, you know, what I go over patients on a repeated basis. You know, we work through the clarity, you've made the commitment, you are working through your external environment, improving that. Maybe you're bringing in some mindfulness, maybe you're taking some pauses in the day, maybe you're just doing some breathing exercises, just something. And then they have a clear understanding. The food environment that we're in makes it very, very hard. Our own physiology loves calorie-dense foods. So when you understand that, you know, that when I sometimes feel compelled to eat something or do a behavior I know fully well is not so good for me, why do I keep doing it? This is, you know, part of the reason. We need to have a deeper understanding. And that just brings self-compassion, right? So many of my patients have told me, that if they didn't have compassion, they would not have stuck with it. So I really wanna kind of talk about kind compassion and fierce compassion a little bit. So self-compassion is automatic when you realize, okay, these the deck is sort of stacked against me and I need to really be gentle with myself. And this is the work of Kristen Neff, one of the, uh, you know, eminent researchers in the self-compassion field, she likes to use the word kind compassion and fierce compassion. Okay, kind compassion would be, let's say you decided that you were not going to eat potato chips. Okay, and somehow potato chips got into the house and you found yourself indulging in potato chips. Now, one way of uh, reacting would be, you know, after you know potato chips are gone, you've eaten them, is to feel really bad and really give yourself a hard time. Use that parent voice. Why can't you do this? You're no good. This negative self-talk, which a lot of us do very frequently is that I'm learning from my patients. So this is the time that Kristen Neff says, 
is to use kind compassion. And this is, she's by no means the only one. Many other researchers say that if, you know, scolding yourself, giving yourself a hard time would allow you to not do that behavior again, you know, that's okay. We can feel bad for a little bit, but it actually works the other way. When we're scolding ourselves and we're having that negative self-talk, we are changing our internal state we're degrading it, you know, we're being more anxious, we're stressing the system. And what do we know from research? That anytime you're anxious, anytime you're stressed, anytime you don't feel good, you revert to your usual behaviors. So number one, kind compassion. Not, not denying that I ate the potato chips that I really didn't intend to eat, but not beating yourself up, think, okay? I am human like everybody on this planet, okay? So I'm not gonna beat myself up. But at the same time, I'm also going to use fierce compassion. So fierce compassion is making sure that the external environment is clean, making sure that I minimize any chances of potato chips ever getting into my apartment. I get a good night's sleep. I exercise. I do some gratitude practice. Maybe I look into mindfulness. That I wake up on time. That I do some prepping on the weekend. All of these things are ultimately compassionate to you. You know, when you eat better, that's a compassionate act to your body. When you sleep better, that's a compassionate act to your mental health, physical health, emotional health. So just using that frame that I'm going to be not just use kind compassion, but also be fierce with my compassion. I'm going to do all of these things that are going to allow me to make the choices, you know, that are more in alignment with my goals and values, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And this is frankly a difficult thing for a lot of folks, but, you know, we keep working on this. And unless you bring compassion into this, from my experience, at least, it becomes very hard to make long-term, sustainable, positive diet and lifestyle changes. And, you know, I probably should have <laughs> moved to this slide. So it kind of covered kindness and self-compassion. And the other thing I didn't mention is be willing to start again. No matter how many times you mess up, you have another opportunity. A few hours later, a day later, you can you know, start again. You can always wipe the slate clean. And at some point, it'll stay clean. Okay, fierce compassion, working on the external, focusing on resilience, you know, uh, what I talked about just a minute ago. Okay, and this is what I have sort of combined mindfulness and compassion, what I call the PAL technique, being your own friend, being your own PAL. So number one, just pause. We've got to limit the distractions. We've got to be present in the present moment. We've got to do our best to bring attention to our body. And this is a skill. You know, This is not easy, but a skill that anybody can develop, just paying attention to our body in real time. And if we're feeling bad, stressed, or anxious, we can offer some love, some self-compassion. Just say, okay, at this time, I really am having a hard time. I'm anxious. I'm stressed. I really want that dessert. 
I, I really feel like that's going to really help me. But just thinking about just a moment, just pausing, that I know it's going to help for a little while, but again, I'm going to be back to square one. So I'm going to choose differently. I'm not going to deny that I'm feeling bad. I'm not going to deny that I really want this, but I'm just going to sit with the sensation for just a bit. Okay, I'm just going to bring love and self, self-love and self-compassion, acknowledge that I'm having a hard time. And maybe just this time, I can have a more skillful choice. Maybe I can get out of the environment. Maybe I can drink a glass of water, go for a walk, eat an apple, and just see if that compulsion, that craving just passes. And slowly, slowly, you keep practicing. You stay compassionate. You become your own best pal. You're going to make more skillful choices. And you keep doing this. At some point, you you just keep sticking with it. Even if you mess up, you get right back at it. You stick with it. Over time, you're going to make more and more skillful choices. And this is not theoretical. I had a patient earlier today, and she said, you can use my name. Sharon said that if it wasn't for the compassion, she would not have been able to be consistent. She would do things good for a while, and then she would fall off. So with compassion, with sticking with it, she is able to you know, make the positive changes that she wanted to make. And also, you know, having community, having a healthy community online, in person, where you're not the only one, you know, eating healthy food. So if other people, you know, you have that exercise together, that go out on nature walks, that, you know, make uh, healthy living a priority. If you have a community that is so helpful in sticking with this and forming routines. So this is, you know, Nighttime routine is something I really encourage all of my patients to really focus on. That if we're going to be busy all day and then get on our social media, that's not conducive to getting a good night's sleep. You know, putting away your devices, maybe journaling, maybe doing some breathing exercises, gratitude practice, maybe a shower or a bath, gentle stretching, anything that's going to lower the stress and anxiety in the system is going to help you get a better night's sleep. It's going to keep you more mindful. It's going to allow you to do the things you really wanted to. Okay, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, in-person community, online community, and I'm just going to briefly mention, you know, how at Lifestyle Dogs, our clinic, how we create community. We have group support sessions. We do potluck once a month. Uh, Walk with a Doc is another program. We're actually on pause right now. We do cooking classes once a month. We have a closed Facebook group. We do, we have a space in our clinic for meditation, for yoga. So we make all of these things available to our patients. So they notice, okay, they're not the only ones doing this. They're not the only ones who are having a hard time making changes. And slowly, slowly, people are able to make better choices. They have a healthy community to support them, and they are able to create new habits. And now the change is forced from within because they've changed the external environment and, more importantly, changed their internal environment. They have a change in identity. You know, they, are, they see themselves as a healthy person. 
and now they can be an inspiration to others. If you see yourself as a runner, and if it's raining outside, you say, okay, I'm going to put on a hoodie. I'm going to go out for a run. This is what I do. I'm a runner. If you identify yourself as a healthy person, you just do these things, not because it's an imposition, because you know that's what your new identity, that's what you do. And this is all possible. I've seen it, you know, now dozens of patients have gone through this program and the compassion is something that they flag repeatedly that if they weren't compassionate with this self, it would not have allowed them to be consistent. And this is, you know, at least in my experience has worked. And uh, I'm going to pause or stop the share and I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm sorry, this was a long one. That's okay, because it's an important one. So before I even look in the chat for questions, and guys, if you have questions for Dr. Chala, please put four question marks first. It's easier for us to differentiate a question from a comment. One of the things I want to go back to is when you were talking about resiliency, the things to do to improve it. How long does one have to do those things to improve it? And does it really work? Because when I think about people in my life that I know, some who are highly anxious, myself included, it seems that it's almost genetic the way people vary in their resiliency. Because I, I remember one time I was walking down the street and this girl was screaming. I thought like she had been attacked. And I'm like, what's wrong? She goes, I accidentally deleted something from my phone. Now, I'm sure it might have been important, but her response was like somebody being you know, attacked or somebody dying. And then right. I know other people that have had horrific, traumatic things, not that they're happy about it, but they seem to bounce back. So what is that that determines you know, I think about those punching clowns that we used to have when I was little, yet punch it and would come back up. Some yeah. people come back up and then other people for what, not to judge people's losses, but for what yeah. we might think of as, as not minor, but a lesser loss, they like, they don't seem to recover. So what can we do to improve our resiliency and make it stick? Yeah, yeah, no, very good question. So this is something, you know, before I uh, mentioned that, there is definitely some genetic variation and also some environmental variation. So if you grew up in a household, everyone was calm, no one had any big dramas, that's what you're exposed to, you know, that's going to be a much easier, more default behavior. So part of it's nature, part of it's nurture. But I really want to make the point that even if you, let's say, genetically, you're more anxious or prone to that, and you didn't grow up in the best uh, household, even then you can develop these skills. It's going to be harder. I'm not going to deny that. But the thing to do is to just be consistent and be compassionate with yourself. You decide what works for you. Okay. If getting a good night's sleep is what helps you gain resiliency, then you say, okay, you know, at this point in my life, I'm going to prioritize sleep. If something like gratitude, like journaling, a lot of my patients really kind of counting their blessings at the end of the day really helps them put things in perspective. So all of these are different tools for some people. Yoga works for some people, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy. So we have to kind of figure out, you know, what is it that's going to allow me to be, you know, just gain resiliency, right? And so there are so many tools. And just because it's harder for some people, this is the, this is, I was hearing one of the podcasts. She goes, there's a big 
sort of jump up to practicing resilience or practicing mindfulness because people don't see that it's going to give them any immediate benefit. So there is a big, you know, it's a big step up. People don't see how this is going to help because it doesn't happen instantaneously. Right. And the thing is, is addicts don't want to wait for the result. Right, right. So this is, you know, a little bit of sort of reframing and just getting them to do a little bit. So, I mean, there's many ways to do this. Is One is just saying, okay, just focus on the process. Just do this thing for a week and don't think that it's going to make any difference. Okay, so just, you know, one just... One way to do is to focus on the process. Another way is to focus clearly on the result. And just hypothetically, people can imagine that if I'm a little more calm, a little less uh, stressed, a little bit less anxious, they know that they make better decisions when they're that in that frame of mind, right? I, I don't have to convince you that if you're in a calm state of mind, less stressed, you're going to make better decisions, whether it's food or anything else. So people say, okay, I get it. I said, wouldn't you want to feel that way more often? Okay. Then, you know, whatever they want to do, yoga, tai chi, uh, they want to do kickboxing, whatever is going to work for them just to allow them to taste that little bit of calm, a little bit of less anxiety. And that's where we begin. That's what we focus on. Whatever is going to work for you for one person it's doing yoga at night. For another person, it's kickboxing. Another person is doing a gratitude practice. So whatever they're willing to start with, and just then we say, okay, just keep doing it. You've got to commit to this, okay? Just do it, whatever you're going to do. Once you've added one tool, it's so much easier to add another tool. That I'm not going to you know, sugarcoat this, that this is easy to do, but you say, okay, this is important to me. I realize this is going to have a positive impact. I'm going to give it a try. Well, Dr. Lyle, who, as you know, also has a regular slot on the Chef AJ Broadcasting Network, has always said, focus on the process, not the outcome. Yeah, right, right. So, you know, whatever is going to work for you. For some people, they're really result-oriented type A people. I get them to focus on the process and on the result, at least hypothetically. It's just different things work for different people. So you have to be kind of be willing to meet, okay, what is going to work for this person? Right. And maybe you don't know until you try. So you mentioned yeah. about people that have um, addictions, like even sugar, where you showed all those wonderful brain scans. And yet I can't tell you how many people, including doctors I have on this show that just don't believe it or don't believe that food's an addiction because they say you can't die from it. Or mean like you can't die from the detox, for example. Yeah. Those of us that suffered no differently. But you mentioned people are using no longer to feel good, but just not to feel bad. And today, when I was picking up my mail at the P.O. box, I saw this guy smoking. And I don't see very many. I don't know anybody that smokes personally, or at least they're not admitting it. And when I see it, I'm like, to me, it's just so weird now, like that people still mm -hmm. smoke. But I think about smoking because I listen, I'm not perfect. I smoked during my anorexic years in college, but I don't remember smoking ever giving me real pleasure. I just remember mm -hmm. that once you're addicted, not smoking was difficult, you mm -hmm. know? So, so can you talk a little bit more about that phenomenon? Because I don't think people that are using even think about that really, that, that these things are not giving them pleasure anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they are, you know, using them and let's keep smoking as the example, 
they're using them as their stress management or anxiety tool. You know, they have this anxiety, their stress, and, you know, for example, and it's not like smoking is going to give them this amazing pleasure. It's going to allow them to be a little bit less anxious, a little bit less stressed. And they may or may not realize it, but once you ask someone, you know, okay, try it for a day or for two days, you know, not smoking. And, you know, people are saying, I'm crawling up the walls. I, I you know, I, I can't manage my anxiety. My stress is through the roof. And then it dawns on them, okay, they're using smoking as their anxiety, you know, management tool, as their stress management tool. So this is, you know, reminds me of what uh, Dean Ornish always says, you know, in his program, you know, he's talking to patients. And he's, I remember this one anecdote, he says, you know, he's talking to this patient, he's got, you know, Marlboro or whatever in his pocket. And uh, he asked this patient, you know, why are you using these? You know, this stuff is bad for you. And this person says that, you know, I've got 20 friends in my pocket that are there for me when I'm feeling bad. You know, you're trying to take my friends away. So unless we develop other ways to deal with our stress, anxiety, when we're feeling bad, it's going to be very hard to get away from the food, very hard to get away from the smoking. So this is where the resilience tools we were talking about earlier, you know, exercise, gratitude practice, being out in nature, yoga, tai chi, breathing exercises, mindfulness, whatever is going to work for you that's going to allow you to not just have the sense of overwhelm all the time. You're not going to give up the cigarettes. It's, you know, that's how you're dealing with life. You're just in this deficient state. And unless you can find a healthier alternative, it's going to be very hard to get away from this trap. Yeah, and it is a trap. That's why they call the book The Pleasure Trap. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure you've read it. Yes. This idea, when people do things, which makes sense to 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 because they get a, a blast of dopamine, as is eventually, if I'm understanding you, they'll get less dopamine from the same mm-hmm. thing. Yes. Can, so can and and so that's like kind of like they're always seeking it because you know it's like they had it before, so I'm going to keep pressing the bar and hope I get it again. But mm-hmm. does it ever get restored? Like, do they ever? Are they ever able to receive? Not that I'm recommending that people like stop their addictions so that then they can have the blast again, but can they ever learn to have a normal amount of pleasure or once the, like, do they they mess up that whole circuitry with addiction and how long does it take to restore it? Yeah. And, you know, one is, it depends on how bad they've messed up the circuitry, the neural circuitry. It really is our neurons really is the dopamine oxytocin and many other hormones and neurotransmitters that, you know, that we are mucking up. But I want to just really underline again that nature doesn't want us to have a purely hedonistic lifestyle. Okay. Whatever you do, whatever gives you pleasure, if you do too much of it, you're going to get less pleasure out of it. You know, those are the rules. This is not something, you know, that we make up. This is, and now we can show it, that this is what's happening with fancy MRI and gadgets. And to your question, can we ever restore the system? So if the thing is really highly damaged and it's been decades, it's going to be very difficult. But this is, you know, where Gabor Mate, one of my other heroes and people I read quite a bit, 
And he's done a lot of research on addiction. And he says, you know, almost everyone, if they're willing to go through the detox, willing to go through the pain of what it's going to do, uh, take to come out on the other side, they can normalize it. So I can't quote you any studies. I'm relying on his expertise and experience. No matter how bad the addiction is, if you're willing to go through the pain of getting out of that addiction, you really have enough self-love, self-compassion, or whatever your motivation is, you can do it. Nature, our biology is so resilient that it's really, you can salvage it at just about any point. So I guess you have to ask yourself, what's worse, the pain of trying to overcome the addiction or the pain that you're experiencing that you, you know, that caused you to have the addiction? Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, this is a complex topic and, you know, we're making it, I'm hoping I'm not minimizing anyone's troubles or anyone's addictions, but I just want to give people hope that, you know, they can work through this. It's not easy, but it's doable. And, you know, this is, it's once you're on the other side, it's just beautiful and wonderful. No, that's why I say abstinence is bliss. And people just think they think, oh, well, you're thin. You don't know. You know, no, I was obese for 52 years and I struggled with the pleasure trap and what I believe is food addiction. But for me, abstinence was the only way out. It was the only thing that worked because if moderation worked, then people probably would have done it already, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what I find just so interesting and I mentioned this to you briefly before we came on, is that um, I think a lot of people just like, I don't know if they just don't realize that they have an addiction or how powerful it is, but it's like, we recently completed, we do a 30-day program called The Ultimate Reboot, and I teach it with the authors of The Pleasure Trap, Dr. Doug Lyle, Dr. Al Goldhammer, and John Pierre. And mm -hmm. so we have these monster Q&A sessions that I don't know of anybody else that does it, three hours long every Sunday with-, with Wow. Yeah. And and so when it, like the first week, there were like the questions, these were the questions that Dr. Goldhammer was getting is like, well, so, and again, these the program is just based on my book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, in calorie density, right? Mm -hmm. So like the questions were, well, when can I start eating cheese again? When can I start drinking wine again? And I'm thinking, well, that's not the right question to ask. And this morning, I got a text from somebody who just completed six weeks at True North. Now that's not cheap, six weeks. And, mo and mm -hmm. most of that time was fasting. I think the maximum you can fast is 40 to 42 days. And then they have to refeed you the time. And True North is not very far from where I live. So the person we shall rename nameless, but if you're watching, you know who you are, is asking me for a list of all the restaurants in my area that can get SOS free food. And so I wrote back and I said, these are them. And I said, but why would you want to go to a restaurant? I said, if I spent that much time and money, I didn't say trying to get clean, but basically, you know, to get out of the pleasure trap, why would you go to these places? Because I said, first of all, I don't even know if a compliant meal really is like, even though I know these chefs, I'm like, I'm wondering, you know, I, this tastes too good. There, you got it. It's got to be a little something, but also, and she goes, well, I'll just go and have water. I'll go, but that's just as bad because the queuing of everybody else eating the stuff. But I guess what I'm saying is it's like people just don't realize how easy it is and how quickly you can get sucked back in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the external environment has such a big role on our behaviors. And this is, you know, this is news to a lot of people. They think, you know, they're their own person. They're making their own decisions. Whereas science and psychologists, you know, extensive research shows that by and large, we are so influenced by our environment that keep your environment clean, eat at home. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Okay, so here's a question from, did I just saw it? From Barbara. Uh, since my son has had COVID twice, he's had a lot of severe anxiety. Could long COVID have exasperated any issues that he may have had, but were unknown? You know, this is, uh, COVID is a very mysterious virus. And I don't want to even say just from that infection, any sort of infection, and if I can use the word trauma, let's say, you know, some sort of traumatic and uh, traumatic event, including infection and other things, they can definitely change our perception, they can definitely change how we see life, and they can uncover some traits, which may have been sort of, you know, not so obvious. So yes, that's definitely possible. But I also want to add just want to remind everyone that nature, our body, our brain, our mind is so resilient. Okay. We just have to, you know, just slowly, slowly with compassion, with self-love, be willing to kind of stick it out. And if you're anxious today, doesn't mean you can, you necessarily need to be anxious moving forward. Okay. So, I mean, you're not going to be happy-go-lucky but you're going to be over time less and less and less anxious. It's just, I mean, it's just amazing how resilient human beings are. So I just want to give Barbara some hope that this is not something that her son is stuck with. Yeah, it's just uh, the thing is people, we're, we're, we're society now, like you said, you mentioned TikTok. I can't stand it. I did watch a video for the first time last night because it was a friend's husband and there was something she needed me to see. But it's like, I, I'm so glad I don't have it on my phone or my computer because it's like people have the attention span of a gnat now. Nobody's going to watch Chef AJ live when we have these meaningful one hour or longer discussions. You know, yes. it's, it's, oh gosh, social media is such an addiction. And I'm going to be going to True North for a couple of weeks and I am not going to be on it at all. I cannot. Good, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, um, well, here's an interesting question from Mona. I feel like I've conquered my addiction to food by 95%. How do I stop the self-loathing when I have a slip? Okay. So this is, you know, this is one of the main things that I work with my patients. We do things that we habitually do. And if you've been doing self-loathing for 30, 40, 50 years, it's not like turning off the switch right? This is a new behavior, a new way of approaching how you do things. And then you say, okay, I, let's say I had this cookie and I'm going in self-loathing mode. And you say, ah, okay, there I go again. There's that same record playing, but I'm going to pause and I'm going to do my best not to keep riding that train. Okay. I'm going to pause and say, I'm going to remind myself that I am human like everyone else, and I'm not perfect. Number two, I'm going to remind myself that the self-loathing doesn't really equate with me making better choices, okay? Because, you know, people know that from experience. If you do self-loathing, it keeps you from doing what you don't want to do, do it. But everybody knows it doesn't work. Number three, the research supports all of this that the more self-loathing that you do, the more negative uh, talk that you have towards yourself, it's basically changing the sensations, basically changing how you feel. It's changing your internal state. And when you're not in a healthy or calm or um, optimal internal state, what do we do? We run towards changing it 
to what we want it to do. We want to get back to that baseline. And what do we do? We do the usual things. So research says that self-loathing, negative self-talk, they degrade your internal state, they make you more stressed, make you more anxious. So it's going to make it more likely that you not do you know, whatever you're trying to do. So hopefully I didn't muddle that up, but yeah. You know, it seems, I, I don't know if there's gender differences, but this seems to be more of a female thing, at least with the people I've worked with. Cause when I've had, you know, male clients and they had a beer and like, oh, I had a beer. and they, But women seem to beat themselves up a bit more, at least the ones that I've worked with. Yeah, it, it definitely, I think there is a gender predilection. Okay, everybody does it. I really want to be clear. It's not like men are not beating themselves up they are beating themselves up less and maybe for less time. But women tend to prolong the beating. I think that's definitely I've noticed. <laughs> that's great. Can Do people have to live in your state to work with you? So right now we're just licensed in the state of Texas. So, you know, they have to be in Texas. They don't have to be in Houston where we are because we have all these things available online, but they do need to be in Texas. Okay. Well, I see all those books behind you. I just don't see any Chef AJ books. We'll have to get you one. Yeah, I have. I, I, you know, I should rearrange. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just teasing you. Well, thank you so much. And do you know what topic you're going to talk about next month? You know, we haven't decided that. So maybe we need to kind of huddle with you to see what you think would be appropriate. We have not picked out one. I'm always interested in this one. Thank you so much. And tell your wife that we missed her, but this was a wonderful talk. All right. Thank you so much, Chef AJ. See you next time. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for The Doctor Is In. Dr. Ron Weiss answers all your medical questions, so you better get them into us in advance because we can't take them from the chat. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.